Don't forget, you can listen to more of our political coverage as well as a customized playlist of public radio stories and podcasts in the NPR One app. Find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk more about how Donald Trump won the presidency and what comes next. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent. Hey, Scott. So you're at the White House right now. I am. Yeah. So we heard from the president there today. Also heard from Hillary Clinton and from House Speaker Paul Ryan. We'll get to all that in a bit. But first, uh, I want to talk with you and Danielle about what the latest picture is of how Trump won and who voted and who did not. Danielle, you've crunched some of these numbers for us, right? Okay, so let's start with just the raw numbers of the popular vote. So this isn't final. Uh, Clinton is ahead of Trump in the popular vote by around 220,000 votes. This has slowly been inching around all day, but that's where we are right now. It could you know, change by the time this podcast yeah. goes up. That's very close. It, oh, it's phenomenally close when you consider that together, the two of them have a- around not quite 120 million votes counted thus far. Wow. Yes. And so that 120 million, what's that ratio of all adults that are registered to vote or able to vote? Do we know that? Yes. So... According to the U.S. Elections Project, 231.5 million people were eligible, give or take. Uh, As of the last time I crunched the numbers, 25.7% of eligible voters chose Trump. 25.8% chose Clinton. So put that all together, you have 51.5% of of eligible voters. A quarter for Trump, a quarter for Clinton, Mm -hmm. and half the population stayed home. Right. So a quarter of the voting age population... Made Trump president. Voting eligible. Voting eligible. Yes. So there was some talk of this scorched earth strategy of just depressing turnout overall. And uh, whether that was strategic or not, it does seem that turnout was depressed. Yeah. You know, we've been hearing a lot about what happens to the white vote, undercounting or underestimating the white vote. So what what is fascinating is that nationally, Trump won the white vote by around 20 points, 20-ish, uh, Romney won the white vote by around 20 points in 2012. It really doesn't seem to have inched around much. But you know, Scott and I were looking at the, these numbers by state just before we came on. And what's interesting is that in a couple of key states, you saw much bigger margins among whites this year than you did in 2012, for example. One of the things we saw was a difference between the behavior of college-educated whites who went for Trump by a little bit and non-college-educated whites who went for Trump by a lot. And if you look at the states where there's a large proportion of non-college-educated whites, that may have been the difference. Absolutely. And I should add that that gap between college-educated and non-college-educated whites just blew up this year compared to 2012, 2008. It was gargantuan this year. But not quite enough to push the college-educated whites into the Clinton column, which some folks had expected. We saw some states where white college-educated women went for Clinton, uh, but not in huge numbers. uh, And that confounded some of the pundits because some of the pundits thought Hillary Clinton was really going to be, she was going to be the first Democrat to win the white college vote. She was not, at least not the national level. Right. Speaking of confounding, um, I think one of the big questions today and probably for the next few weeks is how pollsters and polls got this so wrong. Are we any closer to any answers on that front? Uh, So I have talked to a couple of people involved in polling uh, last night and today, and this is going to be a thing that is pieced out in the coming months. For example, the American Association of Public Opinion Research is putting together a committee to look at 
what exactly happened with polling. But here are a few takeaways. I talked to Claudia Dean. She is the vice president of research at the Pew Research Center. She said she can't say anything definitive about what made polls so, you know, funky, to use a technical term. But she gave three big possibilities, three plausible possibilities. One is what pollsters call non-response bias, by which I mean it is possible that Trump supporters were not answering polls by as much as the pollsters thought they would. You've got to remember that most people don't answer polls. And we sort of assume that people not answering are representative and distributed evenly among all the different groups. But if they're disproportionately Trump voters who aren't answering, that can throw you off. Absolutely. And Claudia added that less educated voters, for example, are less likely to participate in polls generally. Less educated white voters tended to go for Trump. So there could be something going on there. Another thing is social desirability. I know you and I were talking about this last night, Sam. Yeah. Uh, The idea that, you know, sort of like the Bradley effect, what we've all been talking Mm -hmm. about. What if you get a Trump voter on the phone as a pollster, but they don't say they're a Trump voter? Now, there, you know, it's possible that this happened. However, one other thing is that, you know, if that's true, the difference between online and phone polls, that should, should have, have reflected sh- that, right? Right. Did and, it? you know, in a lot of the polls that I looked at before the election, it didn't seem to be showing up much, if at all. And uh, Claudia, likewise, said she didn't think that that showed up much. So we're not sure if this happened or not yet. Yeah. Uh, the third thing is that they may have been systemically off in accounting for who would vote. You get someone on the phone, they tell the pollster, yeah, of course I'm going to vote. And then they just don't get out on election day or they don't mail in their ballot or whatever. So pollsters try to account for that. What she said may have happened is that somehow there's something systemically off in how they were assuming people would turn out. Maybe they assumed that fewer Trump supporters would actually make it to the polls. Maybe they assumed that more Clinton supporters would make it to the polls. These, So in other words, these are three, broadly speaking, possibilities, but we don't know the likelihood of any of them right now. Gotcha. So we have Tamara Keith here on the line. She has been following the Clinton campaign all campaign season and is with her now. Hi, Tam. Hi. So let's get to what Hillary Clinton had to say this morning at a speech in New York. Said she hopes that Trump will be a successful president for all Americans. Donald Trump is going to be our president. We owe him an open mind and the chance to lead. Our constitutional democracy enshrines the peaceful transfer of power. And we don't just respect that, we cherish it. It also enshrines other things. The rule of law, the principle that we are all equal in rights and dignity, freedom of worship and expression, We respect and cherish these values, too, and we must defend them. So, Tam, the last 24 hours with the Clinton campaign, what's it been like? What is the mood in those ranks? I'm trying to remember 24 hours. Um, Okay, so yesterday afternoon into the early evening, they were excited. They liked the numbers that they were seeing for early voting, and, you know, we were at this big convention center, the Javits Center, that has a glass ceiling, and and they had these confetti cannons packed with confetti that was supposed to look like broken glass. Um, And then, like, I don't know, 8.39, everyone disappeared. All of the campaign staff, everyone who knew anything disappeared. Wow. And they basically never reappeared. Huh. 
<laughs> what was so, the room like? I mean, so thousands of people here expecting to make history, and they yeah. did not. And they did not. I, I, you know, there were all of these uh, young women who were wearing pantsuits, like brightly colored hmm. pantsuits and some white pantsuits, but like these pink pantsuits and blue pantsuits and velvet pantsuits. And they were there to celebrate something. They were there to celebrate history. And instead, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, Clinton's campaign chairman came out and said, go home. Um, And it wasn't long after that 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 Clinton conceded. Um, There's this woman who I have seen, I don't know, probably half a dozen times over the course of the campaign. Uh, she's a super volunteer from Texas. Her name is Kim Frederick. Uh, she, she wears like the, the superwoman cape and she has these boxing gloves because Hillary Clinton is a fighter. And she says like she dedicated two years of her life to this, like every waking moment of her life to this cause to elect Hillary Clinton. And, and she was just sort of left. She had taken off her boxing gloves she had her her cape draped over her arm. She wasn't wearing it anymore, and she just didn't really know how it had happened. And she was afraid of what it said about her country. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's hear one more cut from Clinton at that speech today. Uh, she talked to young women who supported her. I I know I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. And and to all the little girls who are watching this, never doubt that you are valuable, and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in the world to pursue and achieve your own dreams. My question after seeing that speech was, what does she do next? Is this the end of her career in public life? I sure think so. Uh, She is not the leader of the Democratic Party. I, I don't know what she will do, um, maybe the Clinton Foundation. It's really not clear what her role is going forward. Um, and about the thing that she mentioned in that, in that speech, on Monday I interviewed a woman uh, at a college in Michigan. Um, she actually is a podcast listener. Uh, and and she, she said, if Hillary Clinton can become president of the United States, then I believe that I can do anything I want to do too. And she tweeted at me last night and was like, well, now what? What does this say to me? What's next on Clinton's schedule? Is there anything? No. <laughs> okay. she's, she's, I think she's at home in Chappaqua, and there is nothing. There is nothing on her schedule. This is what happens when you lose. It's over. Yeah, I have to say, I've, I've covered a, a couple of losing presidential campaigns, and it, one of the starkest things is when the last Secret Service car goes away, and you're just there by yourself. Now, of course, she's still she'll keep Secret the, Service. She's still the ex first lady, so she'll have more trappings than say John Kerry or, or John McCain did. But you know, you've you've spent the last year in this cocoon, and now the cocoon is gone. There is stuff that she is really, really passionate about, um, 
that she could certainly go back to. Um, but I don't think that she is going to be a large public presence. I just, you know, she's also had to do her hair and makeup every single day for 19 months because she's a woman running for president. And I, I see her spending a few days not doing her hair and yeah. makeup. Well, it, <laughs> Tamara, you have a train to catch. Um, I do. And I really hope that you get a few days off because yeah. you have been I working don't. yourself ragged. That's not going to happen. Well, I hope to see you soon here in yeah. the office. Hugs. Hugs. All right, buddy. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Okay, time for a quick break. We'll be right back to hear what President Obama had to say today. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Support also comes from Squarespace, the simplest way to capture your passion with a beautiful website. If there's an idea or project that you're itching to show the world, you should. With Squarespace's simple tools and captivating templates, showcasing your hard work is the easy part. Show your support for the show by using offer code POLITICS at checkout. Set your website apart. To understand your spouse, your coworkers, or your friends a little bit better, check out the Hidden Brain podcast. Each week, the show looks at human behavior and how our unconscious minds shape our view of the world. It'll help you think differently about yourself and those around you. You can find Hidden Brain now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. Okay, we are back. President Obama spoke at the White House today alongside Vice President Joe Biden. He praised the historic nature of Hillary Clinton's candidacy, and he urged supporters to not be cynical about America. Sometimes you lose an argument. Sometimes you lose an election. You know, the path that this country has taken uh, has never been a straight line. We zig and zag, and sometimes you know, we move in ways that some people think uh, is forward and others think is moving back. Um, and that's okay. I've lost elections before. Joe hasn't, but, you know, so I've been, I've been sort of sharing. Remember, you beat me badly. <laughs> um, that's the way politics works sometimes. We, we try really hard to persuade people that we're right. And then people vote. And then if we lose, we learn from our mistakes, we do some reflection. We lick our wounds, we brush ourselves off, we get back in the arena, we go at it. We try even harder the next time. The point, though, is, is that we all go forward with a presumption of good faith in our fellow citizens. Because that presumption of good faith is essential to a vibrant and functioning democracy. So Obama did not spend any time talking about Trump's promises to get rid of a lot of Obama's signature accomplishments. 
What do we make of that statement from the president? Well, President Obama did acknowledge that he has serious differences with Donald Trump. And okay. he reminded folks that he had serious differences with George W. Bush and that George W. Bush went out of his way to make a smooth transition eight years ago when Barack Obama came into power. And remember, that was at a time when our economy was just in free fall and it was a calamitous period. Uh, but President Obama has made it a point of pride to say that whoever won this election, he was going to do everything he could to ensure a smooth transfer of power. Of course, he was hoping that that passing of the baton would be to Hillary Clinton rather than Donald Trump. But he did. He he said that Americans should should view one another uh, with the presumption of good faith. There's been maybe too little of that throughout this election season. Hillary Clinton said something similar about the way she was viewing Donald Trump, wishing him well and that he would be our leader and deserved a chance to show what he can do. At the same time, both Hillary Clinton and President Obama sort of hinted that we're going to be watching you, Donald Trump, and uh, we expect you to maintain that sort of inclusive tone that you signaled in your early morning victory speech, but you didn't signal a whole lot during the campaign. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of tone, in the last few weeks um, before the election, Clinton and Obama, even now as they urged a peaceful transition of power and said that that is a normal part of functioning democracy, they, before this election, were saying that someone like Donald Trump could not be a normal part of a functioning democracy. Do their words today match the rhetoric of the campaign that we saw in the final weeks. Well, look, there's there's no question that both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama see Donald Trump as something out of the mainstream of American politics, uh, as, as President Obama said, as temperamentally unfit to be commander-in-chief. And they made that argument uh, during the campaign. And as Obama says, you make your argument and then people vote, and sometimes you lose. So then you dust yourself off and you go back at it. But in the meantime, Donald Trump is the president-elect of the United States, and they're going to do what they can to help him uh, because that's how our democracy functions. Right. And I would add, when you listen to both Hillary Clinton's speech and Barack Obama's speech today, um, it seemed like two final exclamation points on that whole they go low, we go high thing in the sense of you know, they very heavily, and many people very heavily criticized Donald Trump when he uh, implied that he, or when he flat out said that he might not accept the results of the election. And they, I mean, they made it very clear that is not just a priority, that is a must. And they went through with it. They said, yes, absolutely, we will accept these. And they, like, unequivocally said it. Well, and we do we do have a tradition in this country, too. I mean, there's there was John McCain's uh, concession speech uh, eight years ago was incredibly gracious. And Al Gore's concession speech after the very contentious and legalistic 2000 campaign was probably the highlight of his campaign. <laughs> uh, so the the gracious loser is a is an American tradition. So we also heard today from House Speaker Paul Ryan. He called Trump's victory uh, the most incredible political feat he's seen in his lifetime. And he credited Trump with helping the GOP win a bigger House majority than expected. Seven out of 10 Americans, they do not like the direction our country is going. Many of our fellow citizens feel alienated and have lost faith in our core institutions. They don't feel heard, and they don't feel represented by those in office. But Donald Trump heard a voice out in this country that no one else heard. He connected, with, he connected in ways with people no one else did. He turned politics on its head. And now Donald Trump will lead a unified Republican government. And we will work 
hand in hand on a positive agenda to tackle this country's big challenges. Paul Ryan there, looking forward to working with Trump. But we don't know for sure if he'll still be House Speaker in this new session of Congress. He and Trump had lots of differences. Lots of Trump supporters in Congress did not like the way that they think Paul Ryan treated Trump during the course of his campaign. What should we expect Paul Ryan's role to be in this next Congress, or do we not know yet? Well, Paul Ryan said that he and Donald Trump have had a couple of very good conversations in the last 24 hours and that they look forward to uh, sitting down and talking about how they work together. But look, everybody, I think, is kind of in a wait-and-see phase. Uh, No one's exactly sure what President Donald Trump is going to be like and whether uh, there can be a unified Republican leadership or if there's going to be too too big a gap there. Certainly, um, there's an incentive for Republicans to cooperate with one another on those areas where they disagree and to, you know, maybe just sort of soft pedal the areas where they disagree. And there are lots of areas where they disagree, international trade, uh, entitlement reform. But on those areas where they agree, it's in everyone's interest to uh, to work together and actually get some legislation passed and signed and into law. Right. And Scott, you know, uh, touched on a thing that I think is, you know, uh, one of the biggest storylines of this election, which is that people did not vote for Trump. Uh, it appears they did not vote for him out of ideology. Trump is not a traditional conservative. I mean, he's proposed a heck of a lot of spending, a tax plan that could balloon the debt. And he has been, you know, the anti-free trade candidate in the general election. That puts him at odds with a lot of Republicans and a lot of organizations that back Republicans. I mean, it's startling. When you when you saw Hillary Clinton on election eve at that enormous rally in Philadelphia, where she had her husband, the former president, you had the current president, the first lady... Uh, You had every element of the Democratic establishment working throughout this campaign on Hillary Clinton's behalf, maybe to a fault in some cases. Uh, You had Donald Trump frequently bucking the Republican establishment and proudly saying up on stage, I'm here all by myself. I'm here all by myself. Uh, And all by himself, Donald Trump won. So now on the line, we have Sarah McCammon, who has been with the Trump campaign. Hey, Sarah, how are you holding up? I'm all right. Uh, Lots of coffee, not that much sleep, but that's all of us today, isn't it? You know. So there's been a lot of talk about Trump's tone last night in his speech. Um, Very gracious tone that he took. What's the campaign sounded like today, Sarah? Well, today they've been pretty quiet. Uh, I ran into Kellyanne Conway as campaign manager in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel early this morning as the victory party there was wrapping up. And she said they were going to take the day and just kind of reflect and spend time together at Trump Tower. Um, I saw a couple of tweets from the from folks in the campaign saying that they had watched Hillary Clinton's concession speech together at Trump Tower. Um, but yeah, the the tone last night was really subdued uh, on message, and um, and the message was different. It was much more toned down. He didn't talk about immigration. He didn't talk about building a wall. He didn't talk about banning Muslims or keeping out refugees. Instead, he talked about something fairly innocuous, infrastructure, uh, that has a lot of bipartisan support. And he praised Hillary Clinton, uh, the same Hillary Clinton that just a couple of days ago he was calling, you know, crooked Hillary. And his supporters have been shouting at every rally I've been to in, in recent weeks, lock her up, lock her up. So it was an incredibly different tone from the president-elect. So there are lots of questions about what Trump as president looks like. And one of the biggest questions with all of that is what his cabinet looks like. Do we have any signals as to what that might be? 
Right, and you know that is the next big job for them. Uh, Kellyanne Conway said they're you know they've got to put together a government, as she put it. Um, Trump does have a transition team in place. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is in charge of that, has been for a while. And, you know, from time to time uh, at rallies and so forth, uh, Trump will kind of give shout outs to people he says might be in his in his cabinet, like Dr. Ben Carson, he suggested, maybe Rudy Giuliani, um, both of whom have been surrogates for him. Uh, I was in Iowa this week. Uh, governor Terry Branstad is the governor of Iowa, longest serving governor in the nation. Just a bit of trivia there. And um, Trump said he would be great because he knows about trade. You know, it's an ag state. He'd be great to take care of China, as Trump put it. So who knows? Um, this is something that will be sorted out in the coming days. And we do know that, you know, preparations are underway for for a transition to a Trump administration. So we do have some kind of guide as to what Trump's first 100 days might look like. Um, earlier this year, he put out his contract with the American voter, which had a lot of recommendations about things he would do. Yeah, uh, he put out his 100-day plan. He gave a speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And this was really just a few weeks ago um, at a time when his campaign kind of seemed to be flagging uh, a lot of those, you know, the news about the, the tape, the Access Hollywood tape was really in the news uh, where Trump was recorded saying uh, vulgar things about women. And um, so, the you know, he gave this big speech that was supposed to be outlining his first 100-day plan. And there's a lot on that, Sam. I mean, um, term limits, something that uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate Majority Leader, has said uh, isn't high on their list of things to do, but also some things that um, Trump could probably do by executive order, like undoing President, some, many of President Obama's executive orders. You know, this, it's a it's a long plan, and you can read it on his website or ours if you want it. Hiring freeze on federal employees. I think the big question, though, is what he will do with the big sort of signature promises of his campaign, things like building a wall. I mean, he's already said that he would propose legislation to build a wall along the southern border and then have Mexico reimburse the U.S. for it. He said that that day. And that was a little bit of a change from what we'd heard before. Um, you know, all this tough talk about having Mexico pay for it. You know, in reality, that, that'll be very difficult. Mexican leaders have said there's no way they're paying for a wall along the border. So uh, he wants to do a lot of things, and a lot of them, some of them are pretty dramatic. Um, stop payments to the U.N. for, uh, for climate change. And just a lot of things that are, that are sure to result in a lot of pushback. And also opening up oil pipelines, like the Keystone Pipeline, uh, he's expressed support for that. And we've seen in the last several months just how controversial pipelines can be. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Trump does do all these things he said, what kind of pushback he gets from many of the, you know, the, the American people. And is he likely to have pretty strong support for, for whoever he picks for the Supreme Court? I mean, I, I think if he sticks to the list that he's put out there, um, you know, he put out a couple rounds of lists of people that he said would be his his choices for nominees, and those were uh, those were lists that came from you know conservative uh, think tanks. Uh, I think he'll be just fine with Republicans in Congress. I mean, this is actually something that that a lot of conservative Republicans have used as a talking point to sort of sell Trump to reluctant conservative voters, saying look, he's given us a list of conservative justices he would appoint. Um, this is really important. Control of the Supreme Court is at stake. And that was the reason a lot of Republican voters told me that they would be backing Trump, even if they had misgivings about him. And that'll be interesting. Will the Senate Democrats filibuster some of those very conservative Supreme Court nominees? And if they try that, will the Republicans use the nuclear option for the Supreme Court nominees, as, as the Democrats did with lower court nominees, and say, okay, you can just fill a Supreme Court vacancy with a simple majority, which Republicans will have in the Senate? 
Sarah, you got to run, I'm sure. Uh, get home safely and get some rest. Thank you so much. All right, buddy. Talk, Talk to you later. Soon. Bye. Bye. Uh, just to note, tomorrow, Thursday, Donald Trump will be at the White House to meet with current President Barack Obama. And they'll discuss the transition. You know, the big thing in predicting what Trump would be as president is, for me, it's hard because he's been so unpredictable as a candidate on lots of major policy issues. He has shifted positions. Um, He has never really been within either party's lane. You know, he's to the left of the GOP on some issues, to the right of them on others. How can we predict what Trump would be as president? Donald Trump has said we need to be more unpredictable. He thinks unpredictability is a strength. It keeps your negotiating partners uh, on their toes or off balance. Uh, He is an instinctive actor, uh, so he sees unpredictability as uh, a net asset for him. Uh, Whether that works when you're holding the highest office in the land, we'll see. All right. So that is it for today. We'll be back later this week with a new episode on Friday evening. Until then, keep up with our coverage at NPR.org on the NPR One app and find and support your local public radio station at NPR.org slash stations. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. <laughs>